Well, if you have uh, your Bible print edition or digital, uh, if you will open it or swipe to the book of Romans. If you're not as familiar with the Bible, it's going to be towards the latter three quarters, um, uh, the book of Romans. We're going to begin our series this morning uh, with Romans. So this will not be a short series. Uh, we will probably try to make it as brief as possible. Um, okay, we won't do that. Um, but uh, we, we, will, we will work to not make it as long as it has to be. We'll try not to pull what John Calvin did in Geneva. My, one of my favorite stories of John Calvin is he got kicked out of Geneva. Um, and they were in the middle of a series on Romans. And uh, he'd been gone for about a decade, and they came back, and everybody wondered if he was going to stand up and make a political remark or something. So now they finally let John Calvin back in Geneva, and he stood up and he said, "Well, last time I think we were in Romans, whatever it was, seven verse one. I think we'll pick up with seven verse two. Um, so, point is, we won't make it as long as John Calvin did, who made it decades. All right. Well, uh, Romans chapter one. Uh, God willing, we'll get through seven verses this morning. Uh, let me read for us out of Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 1, and there's a handout for you as well. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, or among all the Gentiles, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and once again we ask for help for this awesome task. We thank you that in the midst of a thousand brilliant things, millions of brilliant things you've done, it is hard to imagine something more amazing than the fact that we are gathered over 2,000 years after the writing of a book like this, a letter written, I mean, ancient times, and you used it for a church gathered in Rome to encourage them. And we believe with all our hearts that you can use it right now in our lives. And we believe that it is the Word of God for us. We don't know about you because we're smart. We don't know about you because we have the right feelings about you. We know about you because you have been kind enough to reveal yourself to us through your Word. So we trust it now. We pray that your word would work now. We thank you, profusely thank you, 
for how you've used the book of Romans already in the lives of saints. Thank you. We're here today because of how you've done that. I pray that you would use it in our lives. I pray that, God, you would use it to upend someone's life this morning. I pray for it. Trust that you can do it. We ask these things to you, Father, through the strong name of Jesus our Lord. And we trust the very Spirit who gave over this text to Paul would now work it in our hearts. Amen. So it's the mid-fourth century. It's the year 354 in northern Africa. There's a, there's a baby boy born to a very devoted Christian woman, and she names the boy Augustine. Interestingly, by the way, uh, it would have been uh, in Algeria. So we're praying for Algeria this morning. Augustine was born in the northern tip right there by Tunisia of Algeria. Unfortunately, Augustine squandered his early years in partying and in sexual immorality following the ways of his very pagan father. And as he grew intellectually, he became a follower of a very pagan philosophy. About 15 years prior to Augustine being born in northern Africa, a figure by the name of Ambrose was born into a Christian family in Germany. Now Ambrose's family moved from Germany down to Rome at a very early age, and he and his brother, well, brothers, they both became lawyers. And through some very fortunate breaks, at the age of 30, Ambrose got his dream job. He became the governor at age 30 of Milan, so up in the northern part of Italy. But then things took a turn that Ambrose was steadfastly against. The bishop of Milan died, and as governor of Milan, Ambrose was now in charge of helping find the new bishop to fulfill that post. Unfortunately for Ambrose, nobody could decide on who they wanted to be the bishop, except Everybody was convinced they wanted a guy by the name of Ambrose <laughs> to be bishop. Ambrose did not want this with everything he had. He tried everything imaginable to help them understand how unfit he might be for this post. He had prisoners, so he goes back, he has prisoners in the prison tortured in an effort to show he's a very violent man. You would not want this guy to be bishop. It didn't work. When that failed, he tried to retire. He's in his early 30s. Yep, they wouldn't let him. When that failed, he invited a group of prostitutes to come over to his house. The people saw that as nothing but a ruse. And so then he tried to escape in the dark, in the darkness. But he got lost. Uh, he had to return home. Finally, Ambrose, you can't make this up. Ambrose goes and he has a friend who has a farm and he goes and hides on the farm. Well, the Pope gets wind of it, and the Pope orders an uh, edict that basically says, if you are hiding Ambrose, we will find you, and you and your family will die. So the farmer, who was a friend, turned him in. Left with no other choice, Ambrose relented, and he became the Bishop of Milan. After six days of seminary training and a quick baptism, Ambrose is now the Bishop. It was a post that he would keep 
for a quarter century until he died. By the grace of God, in an amazing movement of God, God took a very stubborn Ambrose and he wholly surrendered to the Scriptures in studying and preaching the Word of God. In about his tenth year as Bishop of Milan, Augustine, now in his twenties, he moved from northern Africa to Rome. In the process, he further broke his mom's heart, snuck out without even telling her, and she was convinced that he would forever be given over to his pagan ways. But while in Rome, Augustine kept hearing about this preacher, this guy named Ambrose, who was preaching up in the north. And everybody said, you got to go hear this guy. He actually preaches the scriptures like they're true. So Augustine was interested. He went up and listened. And for the first time in his life, he was challenged to take serious the Christian scriptures. Not much later, Augustine found himself, through some interesting circumstances, with an open Bible to the book of Romans. And while reading the book of Romans, pagan Augustine, after many prayers from his devoted mother, was converted to Christ. Augustine's influence would far outshine the influence of Ambrose in fact, he would go on to have a monastic tradition named after them. That is the order of the Augustinian monks. So now fast forward 1,200 years later. Now we're in the 1500s. So go from the 300s all the way to the 1500s. And you're going to find yourself back in Germany where Ambrose was originally born. You're going to find yourself with a guy by the name of Martin Luther who was an Augustinian monk. Luther was entirely confused about God. Entirely confused about the gospel. He was getting no straight answers from the Catholic Church which he served. And then finally, he did something radical. He picked up the Bible and he read it. And he turned to the book of... Well, you've probably already figured it out. Romans. And there in the book of Romans... This Augustinian monk discovered how he, a messed up sinner, might become justified before a holy God. In Romans, Martin Luther found the gospel, and in Martin Luther, the church found reform. That's 1500. Go 200 years later. Now we're going to go a little bit more northwest, getting a little closer to us. And we're going to land in London, and we're going to have a guy by the name of John Wesley. John, very reluctantly, one Sunday night, and I can't emphasize reluctantly enough, attended a meeting of pious Moravians. And someone there picked up their copy of Martin Luther's commentary on, which book do you think? Romans. And they started to read the preface. This is a note just for how to read. Don't ever skip a preface. If you skip a preface, you should kick yourself and go back again. But anyway, so someone picked up Martin Luther's commentary on Romans and started reading the preface. 
And this is what John Wesley, who just found himself there, said. About 8.45 p.m., while hearing Luther describe the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins even mine. John Wesley's life was forever changed. He went on to preach for more than 54 years. Did you hear that? 54, Dad. I'm just saying. I mean, uh, you're like just barely over the hill on that one. So um, he, he preached at a rate of 15 sermons a week. It is said that Wesley preached 42,000 sermons in his lifetime. His efforts launched an awakening that now explains why if you drive around Winston-Salem or any other city, especially in the South, why you see a Methodist church and quite honestly, why you see a Baptist church on about every corner. All of that comes back to the book of Romans. The influence of the Book of Romans on Christian history, it's staggering. I only gave you a couple of glimpses. Don't underestimate what God might do in our lives as we walk through this treasure of a text. It would be just like God to have somebody who's shocked to even be here under the preaching of the Word today have their life like Augustine or like Luther or like Wesley, upended by the book of Romans. Paul penned the letter to the Christians in Rome, most likely about 56 A.D. We know it's somewhere between 55 and 58 A.D. He did so around 20 years after his conversion. It's not his first letter. It's actually his fifth letter. So he writes two to the church at Thessalonica and two to the church at Corinth and then Romans. And yet, when we list the letters of Paul, so the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then we have the, the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which goes to the book of Luke, but we separate them to keep the Gospels together. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then what's the very next book? Romans. Well, it's, it's a statement as much on its length as also on its profound importance. The city, the Romans was written to Christians in the city of, that's not a trick question, Rome. The city of Rome had been an important city for many centuries, but had greatly risen during the transition of Rome, the Roman Empire, into an emperor rule, which occurred right before the birth of Jesus. You might recall from world history that Julius Caesar was assassinated there in the, so the hall of the Senate about 40 years right before Jesus died. He was succeeded by his nephew Octavian. Octavian would later change his name to Augustus. And uh, that would, uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus would be Caesar when Jesus was born. Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire. And at the time that Paul pins Roman... Romans, it had just, the, the transition of emperor had just gone from a guy by the name of Tiberius 
to a guy by the name of Nero. And if you want to have a fun argument among uh, historians, ask them who's crazier, Tiberius or Nero. Rome had a population of about a million folks at the time Paul wrote his letter. Now, a million folks inside of a city doesn't seem like a lot to us. At that time, it's massive. In fact, many folks believe that Rome at that time was the largest city in human history to date at that time. Most Romans were very, very religious people. They were very committed to the worship of Roman gods. Jewish life was tolerated to the east in Jerusalem, but it was mostly scorned in the west, and it was especially scorned in Rome. There would have been very few Jews in Rome. There would have been about 30,000. Do the math on that, and you're about 3% of the population, and that would be the top number. There would have been far, far less Christians there than Jews Many of the Christians would have been converted Jews, but most were likely not Jews, so they were Gentiles. But the Gentile Christians had to rely on the Jewish Christians because they needed access and knowledge of the Jewish Scriptures, which is a lot of what Paul is dealing with in this book. Over and over and over, he's going to be trying to help the Gentiles understand the Jewish Scriptures and help the Jews understand the Jewish Scriptures. So what's the purpose of the book of Romans? Why was this written? Well, many people believe it's Paul's summary of Christian theology, or of his magnum opus. I definitely can see why they think that, um, as Paul really isn't dealing with a certain problem, as he typically does. I just don't think that's the best way of viewing Romans. Instead, and the reason I think that is because I, I think if you do that, you separate uh, the book from the actual church there in Rome too much, and that's not what Paul's up to. I like to think of Romans as like a checkup, like a well visit. So my wife Heather, she's a pediatrician and or works in pediatrics. She has a, uh, a combo of different types of visits she sees. She either sees well visits or sick visits. I'm sure I'm oversimplifying it, but let's pretend that I'm not because uh, I need it for my analogy here. Um, one of the big differences between a sick visit and a well visit is in a sick visit, the patient pretty much drives that. They walk in and she says, why are you here? And, and, and you know, mama tells them why, why, why the kid's there. Kid's going, I don't know, we shouldn't have to be here. Um, and do I get a shot? Um, and uh, a well visit, on the other hand, that's going to be driven more by the provider. So Heather's, she's got a list of things she wants to talk about. She's got certain age-specific, gender-specific milestones they've got to check off. They've, they've got uh, immunizations that may or may not need to be given. They've got uh, patient education. Uh, so those are the things that need to get discussed. I think that's a fair analogy for what's going on with Romans. You might understand Paul's other letters as more like a sick visit, or most of his other letters is, is like a sick visit, while Romans is more of a checkup. There are some specific things in the Romans church that he's going to deal with, but for the most part, uh, what he is doing is revealing to them, here are the characteristics of what it means to be a faithful Christian. Here's the characteristics of what the Christian faith is about. Here's the characteristics of a faithful Christian church. 
And I think we can see that in the very seven verses we look at as the opening this morning. So this morning I want us to consider five characteristics of a Christian church. Five characteristics of a Christian church. Now if you are doing a calculation time and you're saying to yourself, by goodness, that's the introduction, I didn't bring lunch. Don't, you're, you're calculating wrongly, I promise. That is most of, uh, a lot of the, the intro I knew would be longer because it's an overview. So relax, we're doing okay. Five characteristics of a faithful Christian church is presented in these first seven verses. The first characteristic is the centrality of the gospel. Paul presents that a church must be landed, sorry, must have the gospel at the center of its life. In the very opening sentence, Paul introduces himself as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart. Why? For the gospel of God. Recall that the word gospel, it, it means, it's just a big word for good news. Paul tells us that, that he has been set apart for a certain message of good news. And he goes on to tell us that that good news didn't just happen. No, this good news came from God and is about God. It, it came from God as it's entirely his initiative. It came at his own making. God was never. God has never been in the debt of any man, and He certainly isn't in the debt of any fallen man who's rebelled against Him. It's entirely just for God to only relate to man as judge and executioner. So just stop and let that one come into your thoughts. It is entirely just for God to only relate to man as judge and executioner. If that feels to you like that doesn't line up with what you believe about God, then I challenge you to read the Scriptures more carefully. It is entirely right for God to relate to man as nothing more than man's judge and executioner. See, that is exactly what Luther understood. That's exactly what terrified Martin Luther. But God has decided to show grace, to offer mankind the opportunity for mercy, to offer good news. What defines the church is not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. Paul greets the Romans in verse 1 as himself a herald of the gospel, but he closes the introduction by defining them as those who have been forever affected by the gospel. Look at verse 7. To all of those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. If a Christian loves God, it is only because God has loved him first. Luther, in his commentary on Romans, says it like this. He says that the, 
the love of God precedes the call of God. He says, Paul's hearers were to realize that they were saints, not because of any merit on their part, but because of God's love and call. He ascribes all things to God, their whole salvation to God alone. Hence, Paul closes his introduction with grace and peace. In the Christian life, grace always precedes peace. In the Christian life, grace always precedes peace. There is peace between us and God only because God has shown us grace. Anytime God calls us back from our sin and allows us to feel His peace again, that's grace. That's, that's the gospel. So, first, there, there must be the centrality of the gospel for a Christian, faithful Christian church, for a faithful Christian. It, it, it leads to a deep sense of humility as we realize we will not face what we deserve. It, it leads to a sense of common dependence as we realize we are all depending on law, uh, God's love and every time we show up, we are those seeking charity. God's charity. It leads us to a sense of deep gratitude as we realize that God has shown us favor as bountiful as it is undeserved. So, so this word gospel, is it just a New Testament word? That, I mean, we call it, start of the New Testament, we got the gospel, so we just use this word gospel. Well, you know by the way I ask it, it's not. Um, we saw it all the way through the book of Isaiah. I gave you on your handout four examples. You can see it in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah chapter 61. This heralding of good news. In every instance, somebody is announcing good news that, that there is liberation from bondage, liberation from, from misery and, and salvation from being lost. That leads us to another characteristic of a faithful Christian in a Christian church, the authority of Scripture. I love it. Paul can't get through the first sentence of hello without centering it upon the authority of Scripture. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this gospel to which, God, which Paul was set apart was promised from beforehand. We can see it in Isaiah. We can see it in all the other prophets that God promises good news. He promises salvation. This was majorly, majorly important for the Roman Christians as they had to see on what authority they could understand God. They, Paul's argument is you have to rest your understanding of God on what He has revealed, and He's revealed that in the Jewish Scriptures, in, in the Scriptures that had been given to date. They must become familiar with the character and the ways of God, and they could only become familiar with the character and the ways of God if they looked into the Scriptures. It was important for the Roman church. It is vitally important for every church, every Christian today. We must realize that the only acceptable place to find nourishment for our souls is the Word of God. 
the only place to find nourishment, something that's actually going to help your soul, is the Word of God. It's increasingly important in an age where every person believes that whatever he or she wants to think about God means it's true. Just try talking to anybody about God and you will get a statement that, I mean, even a hundred years ago, people would have looked at you like you were a madman. But most folks today will say something like this. You know, I like to think of God like dot, dot, dot. I just don't think of God like that. He's more like dot, dot, dot. You realize the incredible arrogance that we show when we say things like that. Who are we to think we can understand God on our own? It's worse. He has revealed Himself plainly, given us words. There has never been a group of people in human history, never, that have access to understanding God like we do. And what a shame that it's going to be stated. You know how they answered? Well, when I think of God, I like to think of Him like... When God thinks of God, He thinks of Himself like this. That's who He is. Every church, every Christian has got to come to grips with if I don't know the Scriptures, I don't know God. And I know, I hear it. It's so hard. It's God! I mean, if I gave you a book and asked ask you, I give you this manual and say, this is about an iPad. It's making this up. This is about an iPad. Wouldn't you find, think it's going to be a little bit complex to understand? Like sometimes you're going to have to stop and think about it a little bit. It's not going to feel just like a party reading it, right? Well, if an iPad is a tad bit complex, what do you think God is? He's pretty complex. It's not always easy. It does take some time. It is not easy work. But if we are going to know God, then we are going to know the Scriptures. And that was not part of the planned script. So let me get back on script here. Paul was set apart to the Gospel. A Gospel that's rooted in the Scriptures. And a Gospel that's centered upon one person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It leads to the third characteristic of a faithful Christian church. A sola, that is an only focus on Jesus. I thought through a ton of different ways to try to word that. And every time I wasn't satisfied, so I just landed here. A sola, that means a merely, an only. Not a primary, that doesn't get it. A sole focus on Jesus. You see that in the very next opening verses. Paul, verse 1, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse, beginning of verse 3, concerning his son. It's a massive weight to those words there. So the logic is that Paul has authority because he brings the gospel. The gospel is not new, but the very work of God that's been spoken across the Scriptures, and now he gives the full message of the Gospel when he says that it is concerning his Son. That is, the Gospel is nothing more 
And it is nothing less than Jesus. Jesus is not part of the gospel or one of the many ingredients. Jesus is the gospel. An example might help. If it doesn't, it's still coming. So, say you wake up. Your throat's killing you. You get a good view of your throat, I don't know how, and you see it is quite red. You have a fever, feel quite cruddy. You go to the doctor, they swab you, which means they make you think you're about to die uh, for about uh, 45 milliseconds. Um, and then they pull that out and look at you like, what's wrong with you? But anyway, um, that's, just my, that's just my thoughts on what y'all do. All right, um, so you, you know... Uh, uh, you know, sorry, so you, you, you get the swab, they go out, you have no idea what's happening, they come back and they say, hey, uh, here's the deal, you have something called strep throat. You look at them and you go, strep throat? I have no idea. What is strep throat? And they say, well, let me explain to you. Um, strep throat, actually, it's a quite common bacterial infection. You go, oh, okay. Um, if, it's not pr- uh, if it's not treated, there's, there's actually a decent chance it could kill you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It actually can. It could actually cause further infections that go into your kidneys, your joints, your heart, um, and can prove quite fatal. Now the doctor has your attention. You're listening. Um, And and then the doctor says, you know what? I got some really good news, though. It's actually pretty easy for us to take care of. We have a cure. It's antibiotic. So I'm going to give you an antibiotic, and you're going to be okay. You should be back to health in a week. That's good news. On the way out, Dr. Stop says, oh, by the way... Definitely, antibiotics going to take care of it, but get some rest, drink lots of water, uh, and, and maybe take some pain meds as well. You say, sure, sounds good. So what is, in that scenario, what is your good news about your bad news of strep throat? Let me repeat the question. What is your good news about your bad news of strep throat? Clearly, clearly. It is the antibiotic is the cure. So the cure is not the rest, it's not drinking lots of water, and it's not the pain meds. Those are wise things to accompany it, but they are not the the cure. They're not the good news. The scriptures, in particular the law, have given us a certain diagnosis and some bad news. The scriptures look at me And they say, you are a sinner. God judges sin. And His judgment is fatal. But there's good news. That good news is that He sent His only Son in the human flesh, that He paid for your sins as though He deserved the the punishment, and He has defeated sin and death, by his resurrection from the dead. That, that's exact. So where, I'm not making it up. It's exactly what Paul's doing here. Look with me at the rest of verse 3. The gospel of God, that's the run up there, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So that is the message of Jesus taking on flesh and dying for our sin. Verse 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the message of Jesus defeating sin and death and offering us life as our Lord. But notice, the cure is Jesus. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for you to tell people 
that if it were not for that rest and the drinking of the water, you would have never licked strep throat. Of course that would be. I mean, do they help? Maybe. But the cure was the antibiotic. Oh, how dangerous it is when we dare treat anything except for Jesus and Him alone is the cure for sin. As a church, as Christians, we've got to be jealous that Jesus alone gets the credit as our cure. Our cure was not walking an aisle. And only in, in, in North Carolina did I get away with saying aisle that way. Our cure was not working an aisle, walking an aisle. Our cure was not articulating a creed. It wasn't being baptized in a certain way or praying a prayer. It was not knowing a theologian or a famous pastor or right living or good manners. Our cure is and only ever will be Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is clearly given over in the book of Romans. Fourth characteristic is slavehood of the saint. Look at verse 5. Through whom Jesus Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul describes the people in verse 7 as saints. Not because they are perfect, but because they will be when God is done with them. And in verse 5, he says that the effect of God's grace is that it brings about the obedience of faith. He goes on in verse 6 to describe the Roman Christians as those who belong to Jesus. Now, I find statements like that just really helpful. It's riveting uh, to be a modern contemporary American and to, and to take that language and to stop for a second and get out of my religious self. Somebody says, Tim, you belong to, fill in the blank, I'm not happy with it. It just does not sit well with me. I don't belong to anybody. I'm my own person, right? That, that's how we live. The Scriptures say that as soon as we become believers in Christ Jesus, we belong to Jesus. Paul's just fine with it. What's the first thing Paul says? Hey, I'm Paul. I'm the guy who's causing all the stir. Hey, I'm Paul. I'm the guy who's doing all the great writing. Hey, I'm Paul. I'm one of the most brilliant thinkers ever live. I mean, that would be a pretty good way to start your letter to a group of people who don't know you. How does Paul start out? Paul, a slave to Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's an amazing statement. One of the characteristics of a faithful church is that we're pushing each other to better live out becoming obedient slaves to Jesus Christ. We're not free to do whatever we want. We're free to follow Jesus as Master and Lord. A Christian church covenants together to hold each other accountable to making Jesus our Lord, to being obedient slaves to Christ. Lastly, a Christian church partners together to be sent for the nations. You see it in verse 6. As Paul says that, Part of the Christian life is living for the sake of the name of Jesus among all nations. There, Paul's in particular talking about the Gentiles, but the point remains. As a Christian church, the Romans must live in a way that promotes the name of Jesus far and wide. It's no different for us today. We must know other people, both here and abroad, 
who have not heard of King Jesus, and we must go, pray, work, and support to have the name of Jesus broadcast. I uh, realize that there is a lot I didn't cover in these first seven verses. I feel bad for that. I got a feeling many of you are okay. Um, but uh, I think uh, that uh, I'm hoping that Pastor Mark will be willing to go back and bat some cleanup for me. Um, there's quite a bit that was not dealt with, but I'm praying that he would be willing to do that uh, next time. I look forward to this. I look forward to Romans. I'm excited what God might do. Uh, it would be a very fitting way to end if we could go back to that song, His Mercy is More. Um, uh, it seems pretty fitting for these seven verses, but certainly fitting for the book of Romans. So how about we go back to that? I'll pray for us and, and we'll conclude with that.